It's a cool winter morning on February 10, 1863. A crowd of thousands gathers in and around Manhattan's Grace Church for what is billed as the wedding of the century. To many, it'll also become known as the Fairy Wedding. As the onlookers jockey for position along the city sidewalks and peer out of the nearby windows and doorways, the 1,000 invited guests file into the French Gothic Revival-style marble church. Those attending are the creme de la creme of New York high society, so look the part in every way. The men don the period's best jackets with top hats and tails, while the women are decorated with silk dresses and elaborate bonnets and ornately styled hair. The guest lists include several governors from the region, members of Congress, generals of the army, A-list entertainers, and anyone who was anyone in and around New York in 1863. And although this is the height of the American Civil War, this wedding has so much interest and is such a significant and talked about event that it actually knocks Civil War coverage off the New York Times front page for three straight days. Finally, the horse and carriage they've all been waiting for pulls up in front of the church, causing a literal stampede by the storm of spectators trying to get a glimpse of the soon-to-be married couple. Out steps the groom, one Charles Sherwood Stratton, age 25. He has light curled hair, bright eyes, and wears a full dress suit complete with a vest of white corded silk, with a blue silk undervest, white gloves, and shiny boots. His bride-to-be, Mercy Lavinia Warren Bump, four years his junior at 21, is a dimple-faced beauty with chestnut hair and brilliant intelligent eyes. She wears a custom-made white satin and lace wedding dress with a snow-white veil, designed by Madame de Morist, one of the most sought-after fashion designers of the time. Once inside the church, Charles and Lavinia walk down the aisle hand in hand as all eyes strain to get a glimpse of the young couple. After the I do's, Charles and Lavinia head to the nearby Metropolitan Hotel to a wedding reception that sees the guest list balloon to over 2,000. Many are from the press. Their job? To document every detail about these historic and unusual festivities. Here's an excerpt from a 5,000-word New York Times article put in print the very next day. The brilliant assemblage, the delicious music, the merry laughter, the surging sea of laces, tulle, silk, satin, broadcloth, moire antique, muslin, velvet, furs, and fine feathers of every imaginable hue and material have been unsurpassed even in the gorgeous halls of the Metropolitan. The following day, the newlyweds are whisked off to Washington, D.C. for yet another celebration of their nuptials. Only this one is at the White House, thrown for them by none other than the President of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. Some of you may be wondering, who the heck are Charles Stratton and Lavinia Warren? 
And why do so many important people of the day want to celebrate their marriage? And no, they're not royalty. They're not politicians or famous sports figures. Charles and Lavinia are, what is commonly known at the time, freaks. The term freak at this point in history was a generally accepted term that described people with deformities or amazing physical characteristics who generally performed in freak shows or sideshows of the day. Charles and Lavinia are both what we would call today little people, but back then they would be known as dwarfs. Charles performs under the stage name General Tom Thumb and stands just three feet, four inches tall. Lavinia is known to her adoring fans as the little queen of beauty and is just two feet, eight inches tall. So yes, these newlyweds may be small in stature, but at the time of their wedding and for many years after, they're two of the most famous people on the planet. And together, they create a love story that, well, quite frankly, doesn't get much bigger. I'm Kevin. I've been happily married and in love with my wife for going on 10 years now. And I love telling real life stories. So I decided to combine these two worlds and create something new that will celebrate love stories like mine. A podcast which highlights what I think are the most moving, most fascinating, and most memorable love stories of all time. Stories that not only teach us about love, but also about ourselves. Today's podcast is arguably the biggest little love story of all time. That's because we're turning our spotlight on 19th century megastar performers and little people, General Tom Thumb and his wife, Lavinia Warren. And remember, if you like this podcast, please give it a five-star review and hit the subscribe button. And don't forget to like us on our World's Greatest Love Stories Facebook page. It really does help. Today's episode is brought to you by amythedatingcoach.com. That's A-M-I-E, thedatingcoach.com. And if you're interested in creating your own great love story, schedule a free relationship readiness review with Amy today. Mention this podcast for special discounts. With that said, sit back, relax, and enjoy the world's greatest real-life love stories. It can be argued that the wedding of General Tom Thumb, a.k.a. Charles Stratton, and his wife, Lavinia Warren, is the most talked about and most famous matrimonial event of all time, eclipsing that of even Grace Kelly and Prince Rainier, John and Jackie Kennedy, and maybe even Prince Charles and Princess Diana. And yes, looking back at it through today's lens makes it hard to understand why two little people who make their money participating in freak shows are this damn famous. First, you have to understand that this is a time before TV, radio, and movies, before professional sports, and even before vaudeville. These freak shows were major, major draws. 
not only to the American public, but to people around the world. And General Tom Thumb was the biggest star of them all. He was the Michael Jordan, the Marlon Brando, or the Elvis Presley of the mid to late 19th century. For her part, Lavinia's fame would rival any of today's most famous actresses, or dare I say it, any of the Kardashians. By the end of their lives, collectively they would perform in over 20,000 shows and be seen by over 50 million people on five continents. And they lived in an era when the U.S. population alone was no more than a quarter of what it is today. Even Lavinia herself was shocked at the breadth of their fame. As when she and Charles traveled to the Australian outback in the late 1860s to perform in an orphanage, these otherwise completely isolated orphans knew exactly who they were. This despite the fact that Australia's first international telecommunications message wouldn't be until a few years later, in 1871. Although the two were famous the world over, in the end, they were really just a man and a woman who fell in love and made a pledge to love one another until death do us part. And that is exactly what they did. But the love story involving General Tom Thumb and Lavinia Warren doesn't really begin with them. It begins with one Phineas Taylor Barnum otherwise known as P.T. Barnum, of Barnum and Bailey Circus fame. Before he became famous the world over for helping found the celebrated traveling circus that would become known as the greatest show on earth, P.T. Barnum made a slew of career choices that led him down a path riddled with failed businesses. But at the age of 31, on January 1st, 1842, Barnum opens the Barnum's American Museum in the financial district of Manhattan. With the purchase of a 25-cent ticket, you would get access to the five-story building and the seemingly endless array of attractions that included a zoo, a wax museum, a theater for plays and live music, a lecture hall, and of course, the freak show. In the winter of 1842, Barnum hears a rumor about a little boy who is so tiny that he might be someone to consider bringing into the fold of his museum. So he heads up to Bridgeport, Connecticut to see the boy in person. His name, of course, is Charles Sherwood Stratton. And at the time Barnum meets young Charles, he is four years old, weighs 15 pounds, and is just 25 inches tall. On the spot, Barnum offers Charles's parents $3 per week, or about $100 a week today, for Charles to come and join the savages, the giants, albinos, bearded ladies, and other human curiosities who work the freak show inside the museum. Knowing that the future for someone with a condition like their son's is often a bleak one at best, and this offer could be a ticket to a better life, his parents reluctantly accept. Barnum's plan for Charles is similar to that of many of his other human curiosities, by having him stand there like some human statue, or maybe put him in a few quasi-comedic sketches. 
So on Thanksgiving Day, 1842, four-year-old Charles Stratton from Bridgeport, Connecticut, is transformed by Barnum into 11-year-old London-born General Tom Thumb, the smallest man in the known world. The name Tom Thumb, an homage to the character from an English folktale about a miniature knight who rides a mouse into battle. Barnum's reasoning for the colorful name change, the age increase, and the new birth nation are simply to make Charles's tiny height seem more astonishing and his backstory more exotic. And it turns out that Barnum's reinvention of his latest curiosity is exactly what the doctor ordered. Or in this case, what the museum's audience ordered. Because in the first week's performance alone, the museum sold in the neighborhood of 30,000 tickets. Although Barnum always knew that Charles would be a draw, one thing he didn't know was that Charles's biggest gift wasn't being small. He's actually a talented performer, too. And despite being too young to read, he proves to be a brilliant mimic, able to recite lines back with ease, has uncanny comedic wit and timing, and basically is an all-around born entertainer. Because of this, Barnum teaches young Charles to sing, to dance, and tell jokes, all while dressing him up in expensive and elaborate costumes like Cupid and Napoleon and Frederick the Great. His show not only becomes a box office draw, but even theater critics take notice. Here's one review written shortly after his launch into the stratosphere. General Tom Thumb Jr., the dwarf, exhibiting at the American Museum, is by far the most wonderful specimen of a man that ever astonished the world. The idea of a young gentleman, 11 years old, weighing less than an infant of six months is truly wonderful. He is lively, talkative, well-proportioned, and withal, quite a comical chap. The reviews and the box office are no doubt well beyond anything Barnum or Charles and his family could have hoped for. And given this particular time and place in history, it's good to see that young Charles's unexpected good fortune at the hands of some big city stranger doesn't then enter into some Dickensian-like trope where the rich and powerful businessman exploits the inexperienced child, causing him to end up ruined and penniless later in life. No, this doesn't happen at all. Barnum turns out to be a man of his word, and both he and Charles's parents do seem to look out for him. For example, despite the fact there are no child labor laws at this time, Barnum does hire Charles' tutors who teach him to read and write, to speak several languages, to play various musical instruments, and to tackle other scholarly subjects such as math and science. As for the gobs of money coming in, Charles's parents follow the tried-and-true wealth management method of saving more money than you spend, thus allowing their son to continue to have a future with or without a life on stage. But there are some unfortunate consequences that come from having a preschooler perform up to four shows a day, six days a week, in front of tens of thousands of people. Most noteworthy, the fact that Charles spends almost all of his time around the fast and the furious of the New York entertainment scene, so ends up picking up some of their grown-up vices. Like by the age of five, 
Charles learns to drink wine, and by seven, he takes up cigar smoking. These early years are so decidedly shaped by his time in the freak show that later in life he would say that, quote-unquote, I never really had a childhood. Because of his breakneck work schedule, by the age of 10, Charles has made enough money to retire and never work again. He has been the guest of U.S. President James K. Polk, Queen's Victoria of England and Isabella II of Spain, and King Louis-Philippe I of France. Among his circle of friends include some of the richest and most famous people in the world, like the Astors, the Belmonts, the Roosevelts, and the Vanderbilts. But even though he has all this fame and fortune, the one thing that will elude Charles for the foreseeable future is love. Luckily, about the same time his stage persona General Tom Thumb is born, the little New England girl, who will become the one and only love of his life, is born too. Mercy Lavinia Warren Stratton Bump enters our world on October 31st, 1842, in Middleborough, Massachusetts. She has eight sisters and brothers, all but one will be normal size. And like Charles, both of her parents are normal size too. At first, it looks like baby Mercy will be just like her normal size older brothers and sisters, as she weighs a healthy nine pounds. But she stops growing as a toddler, revealing to her parents that something's wrong. She is diagnosed with what is clinically known as dwarfism. And for those of you listening who might not be that familiar with the specifics of the condition, it's characterized by an adult who is 4 feet, 10 inches, or shorter, and for children being below the third percentile in the height growth curve for their age. Also, there are two main categories of dwarfism. The first, disproportionate dwarfism, which means that a person has some average-sized parts of the body, such as the head or trunk, as well as some shorter-than-normal ones, like legs and arms. The second, proportionate dwarfism, occurs when all body parts are in proportion to each other. This is the type of dwarfism both Mercy and Charles are born with. And although Mercy's parents are shocked and confused by the diagnosis of their daughter, they never consider her condition a disability. She will be treated just like her normal-sized siblings. In fact, the only concession they make to her in life is that her father builds her small portable steps so she can move them around to reach higher areas like countertops or cabinets. Because of her parents' progressive child-rearing, Mercy is allowed to attend school with her normal-sized peers, learn to cook and sew, and is encouraged to develop a fondness for music, poetry, and fine arts. Mercy is so intelligent and driven that at the age of just 16, she becomes a third grade teacher in Middleborough. Then one day, she is given the opportunity to change her life entirely. One of her cousins works for a company that runs a Mississippi River showboat turned museum of curiosities called the Floating Palace. And he offers the outgoing and amusing young teenager a high paying job as a miniature singer dancer. With adventure in mind, in April of 1858, 
Mercy chooses to leave her teaching job and enter into the exciting but sometimes seedy world of 19th century show business. Once on the showboat, Mercy becomes an instant star, not only because of her unexpected beauty, but also because of her incredible talent as a singer and dancer. The Lilliputian queen, as she is known, even sometimes does a double act with Sylvia Hardy, who is marketed as the tallest woman in the world, standing a whopping eight feet tall. Though, in typical freak show exaggeration, she was likely closer to seven. But the giantess from Maine and this little person from Massachusetts would bunk together on the boat and became fast, if unlikely, friends, and would remain so for the remainder of their lives. Mercy's incredible transition from New England school teacher to woman of the stage persuades the young teen to transform herself in name as well. No longer will she go by the name she's been called her entire life, Mercy Bump. Instead, she creates a stage name, a name she will have people call her for the rest of her life. Utilizing her two middle names, she is now officially Lavinia Warren. News of the shining star floating up and down the Mississippi finally gets the attention of one P.T. Barnum in the summer of 1862. When Barnum comes out to meet her, he's instantly drawn in by this woman with the soft voice, witty personality, and self-confidence that seems to contradict her tiny size. This last trait, stemming from the fact that although Lavinia made a good living due to her littleness, in her mind, her size makes her no less of a thinker and no less capable of doing anything her normal-sized brethren can do. Basically, Lavinia hated when people thought of her as handicapped in some way, or worse, as a child. She writes in her autobiography, It seems impossible to make people understand at first that I was not a child, that being a woman, I had the womanly instinct of shrinking from a form of familiarity, which in the case of a child of my size would have been as natural as it was permissible. This strong desire not to be boxed in by societal ignorance or prejudices regarding little people like her means she would never refer to herself as a dwarf or midget or any of the other derogatory terms of the day. Lavinia considered herself a woman, period. Barnum signs the 29-pound, 32-inch, 21-year-old to a weekly contract so he can bring her back to his museum in New York. He begins making her extravagant dresses and costumes, costing thousands and thousands of dollars. Once she hits the stage, she is such a hit that the $10 a week he initially agrees to pay her balloons to $1,000, or about $25,000 a week today. The New York Tribune describes her stage performance this way. She moves about the drawing room with the grace and dignity of a queen, and yet she is entirely devoid of affection, is modest and ladylike in her department. Her voice is soft and sweet, and she sings excellently well. But ironically, 
When Lavinia joins the cast of performers at Barnum's Museum, Charles isn't working there. He had recently retired from the stage at the age of just 25 and was now so wealthy that he becomes a man of leisure. He enjoys spending time in his many homes, riding his pedigree horses and ponies, hunting with his specially made rifles, or hanging out on his yacht. But one day, after stopping by the museum to meet his old friend P.T., he crosses paths with Lavinia. And it is love at first sight. Right after their encounter, Charles pulls Barnum aside and says, Mr. Barnum, that is the most charming little lady I ever saw. I believe she was created on purpose to be my wife. I really feel I must marry that lady. Clearly, Charles is hooked. But there's one problem. Lavinia already has another suitor, and he works with her almost every single day. His name is George Washington Morrison Nutt. He's known by the masses both by his stage name, Commodore Nutt, and by the nickname he received from the press for the exorbitant sum Barnum was forced to pay in order to sign the rising star to the museum's roster. That is, the $30,000 nut. The Commodore is a little person too, and at 16, stands just 29 inches tall. He had taken over the void that Charles left when he retired from the stage. Realizing he's got competition, so he's going to have to step up his game, Charles begins to visit the museum and Lavinia more and more. But this nut is not so easily cracked, which means he isn't going to back down to a rival no matter how rich or how famous he may be. At one point, Mr. Nutt is said to have confronted Charles in one of the dressing rooms backstage about his unwanted courting of Lavinia. And fists, they go a-flying. Who exactly wins the fight seems to be up to some historical debate. Or it's entirely possible that the fight itself was yet another, not-so-tall, tale from the world of P.T. Barnum. Still, Charles's pursuit of Lavinia is in high gear at this point, so he decides to invite her up to his hometown of Bridgeport, Connecticut, with a plan to propose. After an evening filled with games of backgammon and polite conversation, the 25-year-old king of the stage asks the 21-year-old Lilliputian queen to marry him. Lavinia's response is straightforward, if not traditional. Yes, it's true, she does love him, but could not agree to marry him without the consent of her parents. She goes on to point out that her very conservative mother wholeheartedly objects to the mustache he so proudly wears under his nose. So on this front, there could be somewhat of an issue. Without hesitation, Charles responds, I will cut that off and my ears also if that will induce you to give an affirmative answer to my question. The next day, Charles sends off a letter to Lavinia's mother asking for her daughter's hand. Her reply is quick and contains the news young Charles is hoping for. Lavinia is free to become his wife. His next move? To put a huge engagement ring on Lavinia's finger 
And of course, remove all the hair from under his nose. The news of the little couple's engagement sends New York and the world into a frenzy. Appearing together at Barnum's American Museum, the couple begins to rake in over $3,000 a week, plus $300 a day selling their own autographed photos. This means they're pulling in nearly $100,000 a week in today's money. Barnum, too, is making so much money off the young couple, he offers them an obscene amount of $15,000, or over a quarter of a million dollars today, just to postpone their wedding for one month, allowing him to capitalize on their newfound fame. But Charles and Lavinia nix the offer outright, saying he couldn't postpone their wedding for $50,000. Years later in her autobiography, Lavinia would write, as the general and I were expected to marry each other, not Mr. Barnum, and as moreover, we were neither of us marrying for money, we didn't quite see that money was any part of the business. So we declined. So on that crazy February day in 1863, Charles and Lavinia walked down the aisle and overnight become the most famous husband and wife in the world. There are a few more pretty amazing details about this wedding. The 2,000 guests who attend the reception actually pay a fee for the privilege to do so. That's right, the great showman isn't going to let a little thing like celebrating the love between two people get in the way of a buck. In fact, Barnum charges a hefty $75 per ticket, though it's been reported that one person who couldn't find a ticket offered as much as $60,000 to attend. Additionally, each of the guests is given a slice of the 80-pound wedding cake. And believe it or not, a piece of this wedding cake still exists today. It turns out that Lavinia herself took a piece home that night and for some reason kept it for more than 40 years until 1905 when she sent it to the publisher of the New York Dramatic Mirror newspaper. This publisher then decided to keep it too and after he passed away, it was donated to the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., where it sits in their archives to this day. Oh, and one more fun tidbit. Charles's best man at the wedding was none other than his arch rival, Commodore Nutt. In fact, after the wedding, he along with Lavinia's little, little sister, aptly named Minnie, went on a world tour with the Strattons and performed together. So clearly the battle between the general and the Commodore was over. I do want to footnote one thing about the Charles and Lavinia love affair. Despite there being many books and documentaries about the couple, there's not much detail about what they were really like in private. You know, those intimate moments that husbands and wives share with one another over a lifetime. Part of this is due to the fact that they were both private people, so neither chose to write about it, but also because their lives were so built around their stage personas that I don't think anyone wanted that kind of information to get out, especially P.T. Barnum. I mean, why bore everyone with the truth about everyday life when every day can be the greatest show on earth? 
Look no further than the fact that most of the world thought Charles was seven years older than he actually was and born in England, not the U.S. And Lavinia was not even the shortest person in her own family, much less the shortest woman on earth. But maybe the most truth-bending part of their love story occurs after the wedding, when the newlyweds have a baby together. Well, sort of. During their first world tour, the advertising for some of the shows suggests that they were a showbiz family now, so would bring their baby on stage and into their act. The only problem is, their love child seems to be a complete fabrication. A hoax straight from the mind of the great showman himself, P.T. Barnum. It's alleged Barnum would go to local orphanages and rent babies for each of these shows. When the baby would grow too big for Lavinia to hold, he would just get another baby. Then, when the baby act gets stale, or maybe because they don't want to get caught in a lie, they inform the world that, sadly, their baby has died. I should point out that there is a British historian who seems to think that Charles and Lavinia did have a baby, and it wasn't a hoax at all. He does claim to have uncovered evidence of the death of a baby buried under the name Minnie Warren Stratton. But most agree, including me, that this baby was most likely one of the orphan babies who died during their time in England, and Lavinia gave her this name as some kind of compassionate gesture. In reality, it's much more likely Lavinia couldn't have children at all, or didn't want to risk having one, since having children in the 1860s was dangerous enough when you're a full-grown woman, but for a little person, it could prove to be a death sentence. This fear is later validated in 1878, when Lavinia's sister Minnie gives birth to a baby girl, and within hours, both her and the baby die. When you factor in the baby hoax, the heavily publicized wedding, and the constant mistruths regarding Charles and Lavinia's backstory, there have been many questions as to whether this marriage between Charles and Lavinia was, well, maybe part of some Barnum-esque money-making scheme. So, was the marriage of Charles and Lavinia real? I think the answer is yes. And according to his book, Struggles and Triumphs, Barnum himself said this about the idea that the marriage was a sham. It was by no means an unnatural circumstance that I should be suspected of having integrated and brought about the marriage of Tom Thumb and Lavinia Warren. Had I done this, I should at this day have left no regrets, for it has proved in an imminent degree one of the quote-unquote happy marriages. Charles himself writes this on the issue too. It is true we are little, but we are as God made us, perfect in our littleness. We are simply man and woman of like passions and infirmities with you and other mortals, the arrangements for our marriage are controlled by no showman. The bottom line is, although they were performers through and through, Charles and Lavinia had plenty of time and there were plenty of ways to show the world that their relationship was all a facade. But throughout their courtship and for the years that follow, this never happens.
Charles and Lavinia's relationship is partially built on their mutual love to perform for their audience. And to them, their audience isn't just in New York, or even just the U.S. No, Charles and Lavinia wanted to take their act to the world. So that is exactly what they do. In 1869, they head out on an extremely ambitious global tour. A tour that takes them through the uncharted American West, to Japan, China, Indonesia, Australia, India, Egypt, and Europe. It is fraught with runaway stagecoaches, tropical storms, food poisoning, and endless days floating on the open ocean, and still, somehow, in the three years and one day they are gone, they never miss a show. The production showcases their talents to an otherwise untapped market and incredibly covers over 55,000 miles, has 1,471 shows in 587 cities, and makes a profit of over $80,000, well over a million dollars today. But when they return from this whirlwind tour, it's time to slow things down a bit. So after nearly a decade of performing together, in 1871, the Strattons build a new home on 150 acres in Middleborough, Massachusetts, so they can be near Lavinia's family. They fill it with plenty of souvenirs and keepsakes from their many years of traveling together, as well as a miniature pool table, a baby, baby grand piano, a small sewing machine, and even a little person-sized stove so Lavinia could cook if she wants. Though this doesn't happen often, because as extremely wealthy people, they have a household staff to cater to their every need. Incidentally, this home is still around today, complete with some of the original construction made to accommodate the little couple's needs. Windows set at 16 inches from the floor and stair risers just six inches high. The house is also on the list of National Register of Historic Places. In her spare time, Lavinia likes doing embroidery. She even teaches Charles to do this as well. Together they make many large pieces, including covers for their dining room chairs. As for Charles, he continues to hunt and ride his ponies, and sail his yacht where he could freely smoke his cigars and drink his whiskey. He even joins the super elitist secret society, the Freemasons, proving just how far a freak show act can go in life. Over the next decade, Charlie and Vinny, as they would call each other in private, live a comfortable life, occasionally appearing at Barnum's American Museum in New York and sometimes going on the road in their own productions. They are, for nearly two decades, both on stage and off, partners in every sense of the word. That is until that fateful day on July 15th, 1883, while getting dressed in his bedroom, Charles dies of a stroke. He is only 45 years old. Over 10,000 people attend his funeral, more than Mozart, more than Benjamin Franklin, Lavinia is devastated at the loss of her little man with the big heart, 
whom with she shared over 20 years of her life. And life without Charles proves difficult for Lavinia, to the point where soon after his death, she finds herself in financial dire straits. So whether for the money or true companionship, two years later in 1885, Lavinia marries an Italian little person and fellow performer, Count Primo Magri. The two perform together, operating a famous roadside stand and opera company, as well as open a general store, both of which are in her hometown of Middleborough. In 1915, she even appears in a silent film alongside the Count called The Lilliputian's Courtship. In the end, the Count and Lavinia are together for over 30 years, until one day on November 25, 1919, Lavinia becomes ill and passes away at the age of 77. Although she ends up being married to the Count longer, in her will she asks to be buried alongside her first husband Charles within a small cemetery in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Their simple matching headstones are set beneath a pillar-shaped memorial bearing Charles' family name and topped with a life-size statue of himself. Carved on Lavinia's marker is simply his wife. Interestingly enough, the man who brought these two together, P.T. Barnum, is buried in the same cemetery just a few feet away from them. In the end, yes, there's some mystery as to what their life was really like behind closed doors and what some of their deepest, darkest secrets really are. This combined with the fact that the lines between performance and reality can get, well, somewhat blurred. So, no, I don't think we'll ever know everything we want to know about these two amazing people. What we do know is Charles and Lavinia had an unmistakable bond that lasts 20 wonderful years. Plus, both of them took what many would consider a burden, their tiny size, and made it work for them in ways that, even looking back from a seemingly more tolerant time in history, like today, seems hard to believe. And because of that, these two little people created what I believe to be one of the biggest and most memorable love stories of all time. And remember, if you like this podcast, please give us a five-star review and hit the subscribe button. Or like us on our World's Greatest Love Stories Facebook page. It really does help. And if you're a smart, successful single who's looking to find your forever relationship and want to create your own great love story, go to amythedatingcoach.com. That's A-M-I-E, thedatingcoach.com. Amy's programs help you break unhealthy dating beliefs, attitudes, and patterns through live virtual group coaching, private coaching, video lessons, and breakthrough exercises. Schedule a free relationship readiness review with Amy today. Mention this podcast and you'll receive special discounts on her various programs. See you next time on the world's greatest real life love stories.